Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Adam Makes Beer. My name is Adam, and today is our, well, on my note that says the April Industry Pro interview. Clearly, that's a little bit dated, but this is actually the August, even though it's September 1st. We had to work out some scheduling stuff, but this is our sit down with Cole Hackbarth, Director of Brewing Ops from Rheingeist. Super excited about tonight's conversation. We're going to be digging into scaling a brewery into, you know, kind of a, a, a regional player, some of the things that goes into that. It'll be a, it'll be a good, it'll be a good lens um, into uh, some stuff that we haven't really talked about um, yet on, uh, on the show, on the podcast. And, uh, and then we're going to dig into Oktoberfest as well. So it, it is that time of year. Uh, those beautiful amber uh, amber color lagers are are starting to fly around. Maybe even some paler ones. So we'll be digging into that style. But before we get into that, I'd like to mention our wonderful sponsor, Blickman Engineering. Blickman Engineering has been the pioneer of nano brewing, and they have helped hundreds of successful breweries achieve their dreams since they started with one barrel systems in 2006. Now offering a full suite of brew houses up to 15 barrels skidded and insulated, matching cellaring equipment, keg washers, grain mills, and more sized specifically for the nano brewer. Blickman probe brewing systems are competitively priced without sacrificing quality, and the simple design and factory direct support from our brewing experts get you up and running faster than anything else on the market. When you're ready to go pro or just kicking the tires, be sure to reach out to them for expert advice and a partner to help you through it all. Turn your dreams into a reality by reaching out to Phil, Tom, or Josh at probrewing at blickmanengineering.com. Again, that's probrewing at blickmanengineering.com. Blickman Engineering Pro Brewing is proud to be the equipment sponsor for this channel and is committed to helping every brewer no matter where they are in their journey. So, Cole, man, welcome to the show. Good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned before, you are uh, Director of Brewing Ops at Rheingeist. And uh, how long have you been with the company? Um, almost nine years. Nine years now. Man, that, yeah. that flies. Uh, I don't have to tell you that flies by. No, it flies by, yeah. <laughs> you, uh, you guys hired a, a guy that was working for me. I was brewing up in Michigan at the time. And uh, I, I had a guy that was looking for some other opportunities. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm talking to someplace in Cincinnati. And uh, yeah, so he, he was early on, uh, I, mm -hmm. I believe, getting down there. Um, I think, were you guys running a 15-barrel brew house at the time? Uh, it was a, a 20. A 20. Um, that we uh, scaled into a 40 with some high gravity and an oversized mash lotter ton. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So yeah, he was he was in on early days, and uh, a, a lot has definitely happened since then. So let's uh, let's jump into a, a little bit of your your path into the brewing industry. How did you end up uh, getting into the field, Cole? Um, so it goes all the way back to college. Um, I was a psych major at Oregon State um, because. When you graduate high school, you go to college. Um, sure. Psychology sounded interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. Um, <laughs> fortunately, I uh, I got a campus job, and one of the dudes I was working with um, was in the fermentation science program, which is part of the food science department out there. 
Um, and so when I started talking to him and I learned that you could get a bachelor's degree in brewing and actually make a career, like a legitimate job out of it. Um, you know, I'd done some home brewing and growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I was well aware of craft beer by that time, but it had never really clicked that you could do it for a living. Sure. Um, so I immediately abandoned psychology, joined the food science department, um, and started studying all things beer, wine, cheese, fermented, you know, stuff. Um, and then, yeah, from there, just kind of jumped into craft beer, um, started my career formally at Full Sail Brewing, um, which is out in okay. Hood River, Oregon. Um, at the time, I, I want to say they were top 15 um, in the country for by volume. Um, sure. This was uh, mid 2000s, 2006. Um, and uh, yeah, that, kind of from there, got into the pub scene in, in Portland, um, did that for a bit. That's a lot of work, not that production brewing isn't a lot of work, um, but brew pubbing, you know, was just kind of solitary. Um, you know, you're on your own, doing your own thing. Um, and I really kind of enjoyed team environments and, and seeing how all the, the big scale pieces go together. So from there, I kind of popped back into the production side of things by moving down to Los Angeles um, and helping to open Golden Road. Um, this was 2011. Um, and then, yeah, Golden Road was uh, well, maybe the fifth brewery in LA at the time. Okay. Um, so, you know, five breweries in uh, a metro area of 20 million people. Um, it was pretty... <laughs> pretty crazy um the growth was was insane um and that that place was a rocket ship um and that really taught me a lot about production brewing about automation maintenance packaging engineering all of the things that go into building a modern brewery um as well as you know training and growing teams of people um sure. to keep up with all that Ultimately, though, uh, Los Angeles wasn't for me. Um, being a realist with a brewer's salary, I was never going to be able to afford a house out there because um, I'm not independently wealthy. <laughs> so um, started poking my head around to see what else was going on. Fortunately, um, I had worked with one of the founders of Rheingeist Bryant um, out at Golden Road. He was one of the first sales guys out there before leaving uh, to go start Rheingeist. So I kind of just, I heard they were, were doing some crazy stuff. And, you know, Cincinnati was a, a hot young craft beer scene. So I kind of shot him a note, said, hey man, uh, I've done this scaling a regional thing. Let me know if you want my help. Um, this is like after a couple of beers late on a Saturday night, I sent him this email. <laughs> he called me early the next morning. Um, it was right after Fobab. He, you know, his car got impounded because he parked in the place <laughs> and it was like just chaos. But he called me. He was like, yeah, man, uh, I can't get you out here fast enough. They flew me out. And, you know, two weeks later, uh, I kind of met the team, met everybody, saw what they were, you know, what was going on and what Cincinnati was all about. Um, 
granted this was December in Cincinnati. So it was 20 degrees and snowing and, sure. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it had a cool feel to it and, and it seemed, seemed like a, a good spot. So, um, early January, 2015, I came out, joined the Ryan guys team at the time they were on doing about 10,000 barrels in yeah. their second year. Um, yeah, it's already yeah, 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 it was. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, from there, like I said, it was a, a 20 barrel that they'd, <laughs> you know, put on steroids, um, to brew high gravity forties. Um, and they'd already had on the way, um, a 60 barrel Browcon, um, which showed up three months after I arrived. Um, and then from there it was, you know, off to the races. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like I might be getting, uh, we had some feedback before when we were talking, is there any chance that you have, do you have some headphones that maybe you could plug in? And if not, it's no big deal, but I'm getting, I, I, I don't know if you guys can hear it. I don't know if it's just me. Um, but I'm, I'm just concerned that when I'm talking, I'm getting feedback on your side. If you don't have headphones, we'll, we'll just run it. It's no big deal. I don't have any clothes. Nothing. No, do don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. Okay. Um, so, so that's cool. Um, and, and then that 60 barrel, uh, system rolling in, man, that's, uh, that's shooting for the moon right, right off the get go. So mm -hmm. just from, just from a personal, um, just from a personal experience being in the industry, what is, I, I use the term, you know, uh, Simon Sinek does a lot of leadership talk uh, stuff and, and he talks about, you know, what's the thing that when you walk out the door at the end of the day, you said, I would have done that for free. What's that? And maybe not as literally as that, but, but what's that thing that really keeps you coming back? Like, what's that, what's that, I don't know, like that, that real passionate drive thing that, that keeps you coming back. Uh, I mean, other than the beer, of course, um, sure, sure. you know, I think it's, it's the team and the people, yeah. um, you know, it, craft beer is a cool industry because people want to be in it. Um, you know, you're not, some people are making a lot of money. Most people are not. Um, most people are in it cause they're passionate about beer and yeah. they, love craft beer and you know they're just happy to be doing it for a living um so it makes it a really fun environment to be in and you know really cool people to work with because they're not driven by money or you know fame and fortune it's just sure. a, a shared shared passion for the craft yeah and, and i kind of thought like listening to you talk before it was it is interesting because so this was my first week at Sonder and this is the first time of they have a team of six, seven people in the brewery. And so mm -hmm. this is the first time I have that number of of people uh, to be working with. And it's one of the interesting things is I, I walked in and the culture was awesome, man. You know, mm -hmm. everybody is working really hard together. They're picking up the slack for each other. Um, and, and that's that thing. That's great, man. It's, it, it's going in, having that high morale, have people wanting to learn, wanting to grow that it, it, it is the, it is the most rewarding thing. And yeah, the, the beer side is great. 
You know what I mean? That's that. But but at this point in my career, that's almost the cherry on top. It, it, it's mm-hmm. actually it, it's that and not to sound hokey, but, you know, it, it really is the, those interactions with people um, that is uh, that that is where it's at. So, no, man, that's cool. So, yeah, we, we kind of started getting into the uh, into the story here of Ryan Geist kind of hitting and then going big really, really fast. You know, um, I remember when I got in, I mean, I think a lot of people felt like that was going to happen. You know what I mean? You build they built a, the, my first place was a 15 barrel brewery, tons of fermentation space, a huge bottling line at the time because it was mm-hmm. bottles back then. <laughs> and, you know, and you're going to put you're going to put bottles in Michigan. You know, in Michigan, you're going to put bottles in Meyer and you're going to take over the world and become the next founders. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Um, and uh, but. I think a lot of people ended up overbuying, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? After, after getting some years under my belt, I started walking into breweries that were just starting up and saying, oh no, you, you spent so much money on stuff that you may never need, period, or at least won't need for a long time. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it put, puts a lot of people behind the eight ball. It, it, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to blow something like that up. Can you can you speak to that a little bit uh, about that path of creating a, a regional brewery? Obviously, it's making a lot of beer and there's going to be a lot of people doing it. Um, mm-hmm. But what are maybe some of the things that that people don't understand uh, from the outside uh, looking into to something like that? Yeah, I mean. Yeah, there's so many things. Um, and you know, creating a regional brewery and then creating Rheingeist, two different things. Um, You know, going from zero to 100,000 barrels a year in five years, which is (laughs) insanity. There's lightning in a bottle. Um, You know, so yeah, there's there's building and scaling a brewery and then there's that. (laughs) Sure. but I think a, a big part of of why we were successful was knowing what's coming and being prepared for the future. A lot of people, when they start breweries, obviously they're in it for the long haul, right? So you're not necessarily building a brewery and then getting out and then starting another one and then getting out. You know, you don't get a ton of reps on a brewery startup usually um having been through golden road and then jumping into rangeist was kind of a unique perspective and a unique education for me um because i got to see how to do it quick you know what are the problems that you're going to have when you scale beer as fast as we did um how do you need to build a team what kind of resources do you need you know from brewing to packaging to maintenance you know what kind of engineering and equipment do you need or not need um so i kind of got a dry run at that and then getting dropped into rangeist was essentially all right take all the stuff you learned over the last four years and do it again knowing what you know now um so that was just a really great opportunity to to take the reins in production and just kind of run with it. Um, you know, knowing that at yeah, 10,000 barrels, you don't need a brewery engineer and you don't need a maintenance team. 
but at 30,000 barrels, you absolutely need those. So you hire those people when you're at 10,000 because you know you're headed towards 30, towards 50, towards 100. Um, and same, same with equipment. You know, when I got there, we were running on a, a five-head cask, mm-hmm. um, which we had one at Golden Road. We had run it into the ground and resurrected it several times before we upgraded to uh, a rotary um, machine out of Italy from CFT. Um, so when I got to Ryan guys and they were like, oh, yeah, we did the math on this. So, you know, it'll get us to 30,000 barrels and, you know, we're good. Don't worry about packaging. I laughed and I was like, yeah, this thing's going to be dead in six months. We need to fast track a high-speed rotary. <laughs> this this just isn't going to isn't going to make it and yeah sure enough that summer you know we were running the thing around the clock and just it was on life support the whole time (laughs) and um and i i called my my buddy at cft and was like hey man can i jump the line get me whatever machine you can as fast as possible (laughs) and you know let's fast track that thing out here um so you know it's kind of knowing those kinds of things and and being prepared for it um scaling recipes is a a big thing you know when you go from a golden road it was a a two vessel 15 barrel premier up to a fully automated four vessel 50 barrel browcon and then we jumped in at rheingeist it was a 20 it was a jv 20 barrel and then a 60 barrel browcon it took one batch and we were fully scaled truth was flavor matched and we were off to the races. Um, so it's, it's just having that experience and, and essentially I, I got the, you know, the cheat codes when, sure. when I walked into Ryan guy, I already had them. Um, and then from there, it's just building teams and, you know, leading people and making sure your team feels valued it isn't just about the growth. It isn't just about making money. It's about, you know, quality and consistency and, and maintaining the passion and the, and the craft and the reason we're all here. Um, sure. You know, we, we talk about that a lot here where it's like, you know, uh, ultimately like all this stuff is it's, it's about developing your people. You know what I mean? And, and and it goes beyond just like, it can't just be your words. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you actually have to show people, right? Like I, I, I can tell you, hey, Cole, I value you. But if I'm not showing you that I'm valuing, valuing you, the, those mm-hmm. those words become cheap pretty quick, right? Um, yeah. And, and, and people, people sniff that stuff out. Uh, just a quick note, uh, core glitch in the uh, chat loves crumb cake. Uh, so uh, tip of the hat uh, for that. Nice. Thank you. But um, uh, yeah, yeah. And um, so, Come, yeah. Coming, I, coming back this winter, there's going to be a little little splash of it. So keep an eye beautiful. on Beautiful. Can, can you give us a, a, just kind of a, a quick overhead uh, view of what that beer is? Uh, so that actually came out of our brewer series. Uh, one of our brewers named Dylan. Um, he kind of developed that recipe it's a red ale with um coffee and lactose and cinnamon and vanilla um it's just kind of a winter holiday in a glass and just rich and warm and smooth and and delicious yeah awesome awesome 
So, you know, I, I mean, big picture, we've been getting into that. We've been discussing the uh, the scaling element of it and everything like that. But, you know, something that also really goes hand in hand with this is it's, it's kind of a two prong thing where one, when you're doing something like this, marketing is always important, but marketing is obviously very important when you're doing something on that scale because we're not talking about marketing for a neighborhood pub that's a completely that that's a completely different animal you know mm -hmm. what i mean um you're, you're doing something obviously on, on a much larger scale and then there there's a twin element to it where i'm going to tell a little story about my cousin um and and i love her we'll get that out of the way first but i remember when we were young and uh, we we're like college age or something. And, and she used to be into Dave Matthews. It was the nineties. You know what I mean? You're, you're into Dave Matthews. Yeah. So, uh, but she liked Dave before he got popular. And mm -hmm. so the next summer when I went back out, she didn't like Dave Matthews anymore because he was a sellout. And all that means mm -hmm. is that he was successful. Um, I don't can, can you talk to that, that marketing element? And, and sometimes what I think is a, sometimes what I think is a, a strange offshoot or a, a strange happening in, in our industry. I know I, there's been some people because, you know, obviously founders is huge and, and as founders was scaling and scaling, there would be, and they, they might be a little bit more on the beer nerdy uh, side of the spectrum. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like may, maybe a, a very small percentage of, of the folks out there, but some people don't like when their local brewery gets big. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's almost like this Dave Matthews effect, right? Where you're like, listen, it, it, and, it, and it's weird because it's almost like people love the concept of local so much. But mm -hmm. the, the flip side of it is, is they'll say, well, well, I want you to be successful, but not too successful, right? Mm -hmm. well, whatever too successful me means to them. Yeah, whatever that is. Uh, yeah. Can, can you dip into that at all? Um, whether that be, you know, the, the marketing end of it kind of the maybe maybe a small minority of of people that that sometimes don't like when breweries get big do you have any thoughts on that <laughs> uh, <laughs> that you want to share <laughs> yeah i've made craft beer a career this, i've got plenty of thoughts one that we gloss over too so yeah. <laughs> um yeah no i mean it's your your analogy to music I, is the one i always go to it's a very similar feel from the fan side. Um, everybody's got their small local band that they saw back when, before they were big and, oh, you think they're good now? You should have heard them in this, you know, 100 person venue back in 2001, you know. Yeah. is the same way. Yeah. You know, everybody loves their local pub as they should. It, I mean, it's pubs forever have been the place where a community gets together and, and there's nothing more local than than a bar and and a you know a craft craft brewery um so it's you know i understand that passion and and the people want to take ownership of of the thing they're excited about um so when it grows and suddenly everybody else is in on the secret um and everybody else has access to the same awesome beers it's suddenly you don't feel as cool and you know, you're not as special because you're the only one that can get your hands on this. You know, sure. you can just look at any of the alcohol secondary markets, be it craft beer or bourbon or whatever. You know, there's a, a flourishing market of people just getting hard to find beers and shipping them across the country because 
well, I can't get it. So I want to try it. Right. I got to check in on untapped and, you know, say I've had it, right. That whole thing. Um, and yeah, you know, you see a lot of, of hype breweries, you know, they're, they're great. The nerds love them when they're small and they can do no wrong. And then they grow and they scale and they become regional brewers. And then people are like, Oh, they sold out. No, oh, the beer's not as good. And blah, blah, blah. You know, sometimes that's true. Well, sometimes you know, it's true. The, the reality is, is sometimes it's, it's when you start getting bigger you can actually make the beer you want to be making. Your quality mm-hmm. control is better. You, you you get access to all these different things. That's one of my experiences right now with this past week at Sonder. It's wild. You know, Chase Chase has a background from uh, New Glarus. He, he spent a ton mm-hmm. of time at New Glarus and, and they make a ton of beer. And so to see the stuff that he's implemented in that brewery there, me coming from par- primarily a pub side, you walk into that and you're like, Oh man, dude, I, I can do things so many different ways. I can be more efficient. I can be cleaner. Yeah, I can be sterile. You know, what I mean? like things like that actually start to come into play. And so sometimes that's the ironic thing where, you know, a lot of times, I mean, it's at least possible as, as places grow, they're probably mm-hmm. making the beer they actually want to be making. And potentially it's, it's a technically better beer than it was before, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, and it's, yeah, quality means two different things depending on your size. When you're a tiny little brewery and you never brew the same thing twice and you make whatever you want, quality is just making delicious beer every time. Yes. When you're a regional brewery and you've got flagships, quality is consistency. Yeah. It's about yeah. making the same beer the same every single time. And it's as good every single time no matter who has it wherever they have it um and that's a completely different skill set um from just making tasty recipes and and making delicious beer um especially when you're not the only one brewing it you've got a team of you know 15 doing it and all 15 of them need to you know be aligned and and have the same training to make the same beer and it's it's a totally different game Um, but that's that's, I think, where regional breweries kind of can settle into a good place. And, you know, and you talk about your Bells and your Founders and your Firestones and, like, big, big breweries, right? You know, they're fans, they're beer nerds from the early days. Oh, they sold out, whatever. They're adored in craft. People look up to them. Obviously, they still sell a ton of beer because they never gave up on quality. Sure. They grew and, you know, they made money and they spent money, but they never gave up on quality. They're always striving to be better. They're always striving to innovate. And so after you, you know, you fall out of fandom with the nerds and then you get big, but then you kind of get into this new zone where people, you just become the go-to beer. Sure. Right. Sure. That's kind of, you know, where we, where we see truth is these days, our flagship IPA. It's, it's everywhere. And, you know, you're looking at, you know, 20, 30 beer taps, a bunch of new breweries you've never heard of, a bunch of weird new styles that you've never heard of. Okay. Do I really want to spend seven, eight bucks on something that might be good? Sure. Or do I just want something I know is going to be good? 
Dude, you're, you're segueing perfectly for me here because I, I, that was kind of the next thing I wanted to get into. We, we've been referencing Truth, which is your uh, mm-hmm. flagship IPA. And, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I do think that that's kind of been a, a, a cornerstone uh, for your brewery. And mm-hmm. you are absolutely correct. You cannot walk into a place in the greater Cincinnati area at the very least. So I, I only moved down here a few years ago, but anytime you go into a place, there's a truth handle, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's you guys, you guys have some, uh, in, in, intense, uh, some in, intense, uh, hands out into the market with that beer, man. It's, mm-hmm. it's everywhere. It's everywhere. So g- can you talk to me a little bit about kind of creating a, a, a I mean, really that, that, that's a big brand creating a big brand like that mm-hmm. kind of what goes, what, what goes into creating a brand like truth? Um, I mean, there's kind of, you know, it takes the three main pillars of any craft brewery, it's production, marketing, and sales. Um, all three need to be kicking ass and, and doing their job, um, for it to work. And, you know, it starts in the brew house, quality beer, you know, the recipe isn't, you know, uh, I, we don't have secret recipes or anything. If I've always said, if you can, if you can brew truth better than us, go ahead, sure, sure. give it your best shot. I'll yeah. share the recipe. Sure. Um, you know, so it's, it's about making consistent high quality IPA every single time. And then, you know, from there it's, it's got the truth brand backed by the Rheingeist brand which you know, another, big player in our success has just been such a strong brand identity. You know, obviously that logo, the logo is iconic at this point. Um, and, you know, shout out to, to our marketing director, Tracy, she has protected the brand and, you know, it's, it's like her child. Um, and, you know, she never, never dilutes it, never lets it in anybody else's hands to be mishandled. Um, you know, so it's just owning, owning that presence. And then the sales piece, which in Cincinnati and Columbus for us is, is all self-distribution. Um, that's just having people in the market and, you know, always checking on freshness and always checking in with, with accounts to say, how are things going? Is it selling? You know, you know, what do you think? Um, and that's one of the things that's made it you know, you can go anywhere. It's, it's because we, we self-distribute down here and we've literally got two or three times the, the point of contact that anybody else that's going through a, a traditional wholesaler has. We've also got the drivers and, you know. Yeah. And really at that point, I mean, when we were talking about the scaling thing and in so many ways, I mean, you're, re- you're really talking about a logistics business at this point. You know what I mean? That that's that's one of the other things. It, it, it's not just the beer. It's not just the sales. It's not just the marketing. But it's a full on logistics uh, operation, especially when you're talking about being able to self distro and everything like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, man, that's that's interesting stuff. So, kind of kind of looking uh, in, in in a different direction. Um, kind of looking forward, maybe into the present, into the future a, a, a little bit too. Um, th- there's always different things that hit the market. 
Um, can we talk at all about RTDs, um, where you mm-hmm. think uh, kind of craft beer is, is trending into the next few years? Um, it, it sounds maybe like a little bit of a crystal ball thing, but we're, we're usually trying to stay. Yeah, my thought is, is, is this on some level. Um, if you're, if you're always there, there's plenty of, there's plenty of room for looking at sales data. Obviously sales data is, is invaluable. Um, Mm -hmm. but you also don't want to be the last person into the pool, um, when it comes to new styles that are hitting and you have to try to be careful, but you, you also, you also want to be able to hit with something that that might be a little bit more a little bit more cutting edge so just in general any thoughts uh as as far as what we're looking at in the beer space coming up in the next few years yeah i mean anyone that that studies history always knows what's going to happen in the future because history repeats itself over and over um that's one thing you can count on So what we're seeing right now is a generational shift. Um, The last, you know, 10, 15 years of the golden age of craft, meteoric growth, anybody that opened a brewery was successful. You couldn't go wrong. Um, That's because millennials were all about craft. They were bought in, you know, as they came out of college, got jobs, started making money, you know, craft was their thing. They were all about it. Um, and now that millennials are getting older, starting families, moving to the suburbs, drinking less just because they've got kids and they're busy, they, you know, combination of age and time, you're just not going to hit beer as hard as you did. Um, mm-hmm. And so everyone's starting to look to Gen Z like, oh, okay, how do we get Gen Z into craft? Well, what did your dad drink? <laughs> Are you drinking the same beer? <laughs> I'm guessing the answer is no. Correct. Right. Your dad drank big domestic or, you know, whatever. Um, and that's, that's what you're seeing now. Like Gen Z is not going to drink what their parents drank. Um, and, and every generation is a little bit different. Um, you know, and if you, you go back a couple more generations, that's where it starts. Craft started with a bunch of, baby boomers in the, you know, seventies and early eighties, um, you know, getting into home brewing and, you know, legalizing home brewing and then getting into craft beer, you know, and then there was a bubble in the nineties when Gen X came up and said, I'm not into craft. You know, the yuppies were drinking cocktails and wine coolers and that kind of stuff. Zima, Smirnoff, you know, um, and so there was this already happened in craft. There was a bubble in the late nineties, a bunch of breweries, you know, went IPO and then went out of business. And, you know, there's, you know, there's a bunch of articles and books about it. So anyone who remembers that kind of knew this was going to come eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it got accelerated by COVID, right? The industry hit a wall because it is so on-premise and it's majority group hubs and they all got shut down and had all these restrictions, but you could see the early warning signs in, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, the big, you know, domestic or big national craft brewers were slowing down. Um, Big domestic brewers were buying them up left and right. 
to try to control the shelf space and get exclusivity and, and things like that. So you could kind of see it coming. So what I think we're in for for the next five to 10 years is slow growth, if any, for craft beer. Um, and then I think, you know, after that, once the next generation comes up, I think there's going to be an opportunity for craft to, to be big again. Um, but yeah, for the next 10 years, it's, it's going to be tough. Sure. Uh, some breweries are going to, a bunch of breweries are going to sell, they're going to merge, they're going to go out of business. Um, and a bunch of them are going to be successful. And, you know, you can already look at, at the BA statistics. Now, local brew pubs are doing just fine. There's still a bunch of them opening. Um, so if you have a neighborhood that doesn't have a brewery, you can open a brewery. And if you're smart and, you know, willing to work hard and, and pinch some pennies, you can be successful. Um, you're not going to see a lot of them growing into regional brewery status. Um, but you can, you can have a successful brew pub. Um, but yeah, for those of us that are regionals, you know, it's, it's going to be a combination of a lot of factors of how much debt do you have? You know, how strong is your brand? What's your sales strategy? Are you maintaining quality? Um, and all of those things coming together is going to dictate how successful you are in the next decade. Sure. To that end, a lot of people are becoming craft beverage companies. Okay. People aren't buying craft beer. We'll make what they are buying. So a lot of people are getting into RTDs, um, which is ready to drink cocktail, um, which kind of all that's getting muddied with, with all of this. Um, you know, there's RTDs versus FMBs versus wine coolers. And there's, you know, how they're taxed by the TTB versus how they're communicated at the shelf versus how. And what know, are those two other beverages that you just mentioned? Uh, well, uh, wine so coolers, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wine, wine coolers. We know what those are, right? It's yep, flavored yep. wine, commodity wine. Um, and then FMBs are flavored malt beverages. Um, sure. So, you know, Zima, Smirnoff, Ice, those are classic FMBs. Twisted Tea is an FMB. Um, most of your seltzers, your seltzers are all FMBs for the most part. Um, and there's some weird rules around technically being an FMB according to TTB versus not. And it's, it's a lot of legal stuff, but sure. the short answer is anything malt based or sugar based. Um, and then RTD is anything with spirits. Mm -hmm. So all of your ready to drink cocktails, you know, margaritas in a can, you know, rum and Cokes, Jack and Cokes, all that kind of stuff, prepackaged, ready to drink. Um, sure. But sure being spirits based is where the alcohol comes from. That's the, the key piece of that. Um, and then you have things like high noon that are blending all those together. Um, Cause it's owned by Gallo, which is the largest winery in the world. Um, it is a spirit based cocktail, but they're calling themselves a seltzer. Yes. Which is an FMB. So sure. Sure. The, that, I think that's a, a great example of what perfectly kind of sums up alcoholic beverage right now it's a lot sure. of blurring categories intentionally to try to capture as many you know customers and occasions as as you can sure. um, all that said 
if you're going to get out of craft beer, you need to be ready to spend a lot of money in advertising and marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's, it's a different consumer. Craft consumers are promiscuous. They'll drink all kinds of stuff. You know, they'll have an IPA one night and a, you know, Boulevardier the next, and then it caps off the following night. Right. Everybody else outside of craft is pretty loyal to their drink, right? I drink Bud Light and that's it. Or I drink Jack Daniels and that's it, right? Um, so to get outside of craft beer, you've got to really appeal to that consumer um, who is already loyal to a giant brand that's constantly pushing themselves on that consumer. So to wrestle them away, you've got to spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Craft consumers are unique in that we've trained them over the last 20 years to look for things and always be looking for the next thing and always wonder, you know, what is this style of beer and what's in this can and who's this new brewery. And so you've got this audience that's always kind of, you don't need to advertise to them because they want to know what's next and they're looking for it actively. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's two totally different consumers. And if you don't understand that, you're going to have a hard time. Um, which is why, yeah, the seltzer game, a bunch of people got into it and there was only a few really big players. There's White Claw is truly, you know, and a few others, you know, obviously AB had their, their players, but there were no meaningful craft players that kind of unseated any of those big guys for that reason. And the same is going to be with RTD. Mm -hmm. Where, where there's a difference is spirits. Spirits is kind of, entering a craft renaissance right now and they're kind of getting, getting into what craft beer was, you know, 25th, you know, 15, 20 years ago where everybody's looking for new spirits. They're looking for new whiskey brands. They're, you know, everybody's talking about what's new and what's good. And, you know, the secondary market is on fire. Um, and there's, you know, you can take bulk spirit from one of the three big whiskey makers in the world and you can repackage it and it, the quality's there, you know, it's not like, you know, if, if craft brewers could have bought domestic light lager from the big brewers and rebranded it, it would have been a totally different industry. Right. Sure, sure. But they were forced to make new things and, you know, reinvent new styles and come up with new stuff. Cause they didn't have that option spirits. It's completely the opposite. Most of the spirits out there are, buying the bulk spirit and the quality is great. So, you know, it's, it's an easy thing to get into. Um, and you know, if you sell 40,000 cases, you can sell that brand for, you know, $10 million. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every week there's another one that, that does it. So spirits is going to be interesting to watch. Um, again, whether crap brewers getting into spirits works, I think it's up to the brewer and how well they know that customer and, their willingness to invest in that Um, but long story short the brewers that focus on quality and continue to appeal to the craft consumer are going to be okay sure Um, as long as they don't make any dumb business decisions sure (laughs) Um, we've been seeing we've been seeing increasingly more and more people that are jumping into uh the light lager scene uh, mm-hmm. And I know, I, I know Ryan Geist is doing that right now with, uh, with, with Cincy Light. 
Can yep. can you talk to can you talk to us a, a little bit about just you know stylistically what that beer is, um, kind of what your hopes and goals are for that brand and and, and some things like that. Yeah, I mean the the style's pretty straightforward. You know, there's a bunch of there's three big players that have been making it for 150 years, um, and it's it's 4.2 percent. Um, 95 to 125 calories mm -hmm. and it's it's light it's crushable very very low hop character and it is beer that tastes like beer right yeah. it's what most people it's their first beer experience um what do you think the challenge is is as a craft brewery trying to break into that side of it because you know, it still is, even though even though Rheingeist is a large player on the craft side, a regional brewery, the difference in scale between a Bud Miller Coors is still it, 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 it's still wild. You know, yeah. it's still two different games. And, uh, and you start getting into like like a price point discussion as well. Right. Because mm -hmm. we 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 as craft brewers are used to selling in this ultra premium market. Right. Mm -hmm. And so people are willing to pay high for that. But there's going to be challenges where you're making a beer um, that is comparable or better. Well, you know, whatever it is. But I mean, you're making that beer style and you can't necessarily always expect to still be charging what you're what you're charging for your super supreme four packs of, you know, high gravity adjunct beer and everything like that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what what are your thoughts on, on on kind of cracking into that market and some of the challenges? Yeah, I mean, first off, it's quality, right? Um, you can't hide anything in that beer. Mm -hmm. If the fermentation's off, if your raw materials aren't of a certain quality, if your process isn't of a certain quality, it's going to show. Um, you know, a lot of craft beer styles, you know, especially your smoothie sours and pastry stouts and triple IPAs, you can throw so much flavor at them that a lot of flaws can be hidden and covered up. Um, sure. Light lager, you're not hiding anything. Um, so it's really hard to, to make a beer, again, as good and as consistent as the big brewers that have been doing it for 150 years. Sure. Um, but it's possible. Mm -hmm. So once you have that, okay, and then you, you're, you're reaching out to a new consumer, right? You're reaching out to somebody that's been drinking Bud Light or Coors Light their whole life um, and saying, hey, try this. Mm -hmm. Why? I'm perfectly happy with the one I've been drinking. Why bother? Okay. You know, so you've got to find a way to appeal to that consumer. Um, it starts with price right? They're not going to pay a penny more for something that's as good. Okay, fine. You make it, you make a nice light beer. It's just as good as the one I've been drinking. Why would I pay more for it? Um, which is why historically craft has had such a hard time cracking the light beer category. Um, so you've got to find, you know, say you, okay, let's match price. Let's line price with domestic. Still, why would I drink that? So you've got to appeal to them in some way that says, no, we've got a story that you care about. We've got a reason for you to drink this versus that. 
you know, that could be a heritage brand, um, you know, that, oh, my granddad drank that and my great granddad drank that, you know, I've heard of that old beer style. That's oh, cool. That's really cool. It's coming back. And you saw that in craft, you know, for the last few years, you know, obviously Christian Moorline with uh, Hootie and Little Kings, you know, they're the local legends for that, right? They're keeping those those beer styles alive, um, you know, and I'm, I'm super excited to see what what's going to happen with in new hands for those brands. Um, I think it's going to be great. Um, but even in, you know, in Indiana, uh, Upland was doing champagne velvet, right? You kind of got, got some of these heritage brands coming back. Um, so there's, you know, there's an angle there. Um, since light for us uh, is taking advantage of the NIL, which is the name image likeness, um, where players are allowed to make money um, in college because universities are making a lot of money off of them <laughs> and the sports they play and how well, the, how well they do. Um, so that, you know, just became legal but a decade ago, but didn't really become relevant until the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, you're seeing all these different universities sign up with all these different beers coming out. And, and so that is what I think the, the reason to buy for Cincy Light is. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're into light lager. You want to tailgate with light lager. You want something crushable and tasty. It tastes like beer. Gotcha. Cool. You're in Cincinnati. You want to support UC. Guess what? Buy Cincy Light. You're supporting UC. Um, you know, every there's portion proportion of proceeds that goes to, to every single uh, case that gets sold. And um, so it, it's it's finding a way to to just appeal to that consumer and sure. kind of get get top of mind. Um, and and that's been huge for us. Like we didn't know how to get in with with light beer. Like you know we we had Cheetah, which is a nice craft lager, five percent. Um, you know, got a gold at the World Beer Cup this year. I was about to say if you didn't great, say it, great, great yeah. lager, right? You know, oh, yeah. one one of the best in the world. Um, yeah. So, you know, but it was still, it was still doing just okay, right? Because we were still targeting craft consumers, you know, and, and it, it wasn't the, the light lager consumer. Um, but since he likes been able to appeal, it's been massive for us. Um, we're struggling to keep up with demand. Um, it's the biggest new brand launch we've ever had, um, which is crazy. Um, and certainly unexpected going into the year. We weren't, it wasn't in the plan. The opportunity had didn't present itself until the spring. So we kind of fast tracked and just moved as quickly as we could to get ready for football season. And it, it all kind of came together from a branding perspective and a, a liquid perspective. And now we're, we're out and we're trying to get out to the market as fast as possible. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been fantastic. That's awesome, man. Um, you know, a few weeks back, I had uh, spoke a little bit on uh, some of the things you see popping up. I know there are some articles in, in kind of the craft beer world about people talking about brewer burnout. Um, and, you know, you're running a large staff. How, how many people do you do have employed there at Rheingeist? Uh, we're about 300 depending on seasonal staff. That's awesome, brother. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and, and these articles are talking about, 
you know, uh, brewer burnout, you see people talking, uh, some people online, I mean, there's specific pages on Facebook talking about pay me minimum wage to run your entire brewery. That's the name of one page. Uh, there's different things like that, you know, people voicing concerns. I believe it's, it's creature comforts um, that they have some brewers down there that are trying to, to unionize. Um, there, there's, there's some interesting things. And then even just getting into the, the overall, uh, concept, the overarching concept of health within our industry. Um, what do you see some of those, some of those big issues are and, and, and what, what are your, some of your takes on that? Yeah. I mean, anytime you have an industry where people are passionate about what they do and they really truly care about what they do, um, you're going to see people taking advantage of it and it, it goes both ways. Um, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of it as I'm sure you are. There are weeks you'll spend 70, 80 hours a week in the brewery because you want everything to get done. You want the beer to be perfect. You want to meet all the sales goals and, you know, make sure everything's working well. And, it, and you, you know, you run yourself into burnout because you care so much about it and you you want it to be successful because um, there's a personal connection. You know, you're not just manufacturing a widget for a giant global company that, you know, whatever. Um, it's, it's a very personal thing and you get to interact with the customer and say, yeah, I made this beer and that's awesome. You're enjoying it. You know, it's, it's a very cool feeling. Um, so we as brewers, tend to undervalue ourselves because we put value to that cool factor and how fun it is to be in this industry. Um, and then on the flip side, you've got brewery owners and, and people that take advantage of it and say, well, I've got a line of people out the door that will work for nothing. So if you're not happy, leave. I'll have your job filled tomorrow. Um, fortunately, that's no longer as prevalent as it used to be back in the day. Um, part of the reason I started bouncing around the country is because I, you know, I was a degree brewer. I had formal training and the student loans to show for it. Um, mm -hmm. And I couldn't get a job that was over minimum wage, you know, and I was like, I, I, I can't do this. Um, you know, so I started to have moving around the country to find better opportunities. And now I think that's happening everywhere. Um, and brewers are standing up and saying, no, I deserve more. I'm giving you more than a nine to five. Um, and you should pay me that way. Mm -hmm. um, but like anything, it takes time. Um, and the whole industry has to come up, you know, and there's a lot of people, you know, and Rheingeist included, you know, we say, oh, we're, we're better than the industry average. You know, we're, we're better than most. Okay. The bar is really, really low. <laughs> so you're going to brag about tripping over a really low bar. I'm, okay. You know, good, cool. But there's more, there's more that needs to be done. Um, you know, and we're, we're going through it right now. You know, obviously since he light wasn't planned, it was already a busy summer and we dropped that on top of the busiest months of the year and yeah i've got some brewers that are burned out and and the team's feeling it and you know you you have to go in and you have to address it um and yeah some of it is all right we need to 
we need to get creative and start thinking about ways that we can pay people more. Um, and we need to advocate for our staff with ownership to say, I'm, I'm sorry, but we need to take a hit to the margin so that we can, we can pay the people that are here, that are trained, that are good at their jobs to keep them. Um, it takes four to six months to train a brewer. You know, it's not like we can go out and hire somebody next week and then they're functional and on their own, you know, in three days. It's, it's a very complex process and there's a lot that goes into maintaining a high level of, of quality. Um, so you have to invest in that. Um, and then, you know, we all work for money. It's a job for everybody, but it's not everything. Um, so in addition to that, you've got to make people feel valued and heard and, and you need to make sure they feel like they're a part of the process. Um, and they're not just a cog, sure. you know, in the machine. Sure. Um, so that's, that's a lot of good communication and leadership and, and trying to touch base with your team. And, you know, something I've recently been, been very focused on, um, and, you know, I'll be honest, it gotten away from me a little bit, um, with, with the busy summer. So, you know, it's, it's never ending. You always have to be, it's leadership. It's just engaging with your team and, and making sure they feel like individuals and, and valued. Um, and to that point, we're, we're putting guardrails on sales and production right now. Um, we're not just opening the faucet on Cincy light and saying, all right, let's dump as much, into the pipeline as we can, you know, we're tactfully pulling back and locking down production schedules and saying, no, we can't audible another batch in this week or next week, you know, sure. knowing, yeah, we're, we might be missing out on some sales yeah. um, and we might not be fully realizing the opportunity that we have right now, but that's to the benefit of the team and, and giving them a break and, knowing recognizing they're they're overworked and you know it's a hundred degrees inside the brewery take a break yeah you know let's yeah. let's slow down and think about why we're doing this yeah definitely <laughs> man that's um no i i think you're i i think you're spot on and uh we're gonna shift a little bit and jump into beer but sometimes I, i'm I'm a, I'm a relatively uh, a, emotional guy. I, I feel a lot of feelings, Cole. And and something <laughs> I'm something I'm just going to mention is I'm, I always find every time I sit down with somebody for for these conversations, I just love having the I, I just love having the discussion, and uh, I'm just really uh, just filled with gratitude. Um, j just so all, all of you know, back there, Cole was probably when I moved down here three years ago. I think Cole was the only brewer I knew potentially for like a year and a half. And uh, he's always gone out of his way to uh, for advice uh, for a sounding board. Um, and, and he really is somebody that, that, that gives back in that regard. So I'm just super thankful. I, I'm really glad you made the time and I'm just really enjoying myself so far. So anyways, yeah, man, uh, I appreciate your time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, man. So, so let, let's talk uh, Oktoberfest. I mean, this is the season. Um, the, yeah. the beers have already, the beers have already been out on the shelf. When, when did October, what, what is your Oktoberfest brand? Uh, Franz. Franz. Uh, when did uh, Franz hit the store shelves? 
<laughs> uh, I want to say it might have actually hit at the end of July. There um, you go. It's well, every every year Oktoberfest season seems to creep up a little <laughs> earlier and earlier. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, if if people didn't want to be buying it, it wouldn't be hitting the store shelves at that point. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So so it hits and it sells. So kind of diving into the style, there there's kind of a, a two pronged approach people can 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 make with these with these fest style beers, they, they can make uh, a little bit more golden versions or a little bit more amber versions. Can you kind of jump into the, your goal or vision with what uh, Franz, your Oktoberfest beer looks like for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the, in modern brewing, uh, Germany included, there are kind of two versions, right? There's your traditional Oktoberfest, which is really a Meritzen served during Oktoberfest. Same style, different time of year. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Fest beer, which is a little bit lighter, a little bit higher ABV. You know, instead of five to five, five, it's six to six, five. Um, so it's got a little more kick. It's a little easier to go down. You know, it's your party beer, your drinking beer. Um, so those are kind of the two avenues you can, you can go these days and, and kind of call it an Oktoberfest. With Franz, uh, we went, and this this was uh, Jim Matt, our original head brewer. This is his recipe. Um, that I'm not going to take take credit for any of this uh, <laughs> other than keeping it alive this long. Um, so this is this was his brainchild back in you know when they first opened in 2013. Um, obviously, Cincinnati has a huge German heritage. Um, we have the second largest Oktoberfest celebration in the world outside of Munich. Um, so Oktoberfests are huge around here. Mm -hmm. You know, most craft brewers do one and it's like, a, oh, cool. Yeah, Oktoberfest, that's a big German thing, right? It's a totally different thing here in Cincinnati. It is, it is huge. And yeah, people are, you know, licking their lips, waiting for the Oktoberfest season every year. And it, it never seems to come early enough. Um, so, you know, his, his vision for that beer was more of a, a traditional Oktoberfest Meriton style, um, a little bit darker, you know, kind of like an amber, a light amber lager, um, you know, 5.4% ABV, um, 20 BU, and that's kind of, you know, traditional, traditional hopping, um, middle for a tradition. We've kind of played around with a few of those noble varieties, but we've always kept it noble um and then just a really nice complex um but drinkable malt bill yeah, yeah. A, a, yeah. a pale ale base um then with healthy doses of of care munich munich one two um and even a little vienna um to just kind of get this really complex uh, aroma and flavor profile of of pretzel and you know, bread crust and just kind of smooth, balanced, you know. Yeah. And for, yeah. for all, all of us that are so used to making all these really, you know, hot forward beers and everything like that. I mean, these are, these are real malt forward, you know, this is the real time to flex the, those malt mm -hmm. muscles. And one of the things that I love of, of, of what you talked about with, with those malts that are in there, you know, that range of Munich malt can kind of have, 
you know, that bread crusty, toasty thing going on that Vienna, I don't know about you, but sometimes Vienna can, can, you know, be a little bit more, maybe a little bit more into the nutty range. Mm -hmm. Um, and and then you, then you get some of those, uh, a a little bit of caramel malt in there. And it's, it's just a nice arc of flavor, man. It's, it's awfully nice. So one of my thoughts with, with, with a beer like this is, is kind of the tie-in between uh, finishing gravity on these beers and then uh, how you're balancing that with IBU. Um, so where does where does this beer finish out for you? Just, just ballpark even. Uh, so we like to keep it below three. It's usually around 2.8. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're telling me things that's, I love that's to Cleo hear. For all of you <laughs> yeah, specific yeah, yeah. gravity nuts out there, I'm throwing you for a loop. We work in in degrees play-doh yeah so i mean really you're you're, you're looking anywhere from you know 10 10 10 12 uh in, yep. in that range if, if you're talking specific gravity and, and that's music to my ears just from a just from a personal standpoint uh when, when you take those beers uh, into that range um you don't have a tremendous amount of sweetness that you need to conquer with that with that bitterness mm-hmm. right and I think that's the thing we, we always talk on here. I, I think that's one of the, the components to really elevating the drinkability of a beer, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have a ton of residual sweetness that's kind of bogging your palate down. You don't have to stack additional bitterness on top of it to, to balance out that sweetness. So mm-hmm. you're, not, you're, you're not pounding the palate with all these things that, that are, that's going to make a beer harder to drink, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is this is this is all music to my ears. This is that's uh, that that's my preferred uh, approach with those beers as well. And, and even when you're talking about the the paler version, and and sometimes, you know that that paler version, that fest beer style, you know it's it's a little bit darker than Hellas, maybe maybe into golden a little bit, but that that paler style almost has like this kind of like super Hellas element to it, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not like a double Hellas or, you know, like we think, yeah. you know, IPA to double IPA, but, but it is a beefed up Hellas a, a mm-hmm. little bit, you know? Um, one, thing, one, one thing that I'm curious about is uh, when we talked about those 20 BU in Franz, is that all going in, uh, you know, as like, like a boil hop? Are you reserving anything a little later in the kettle for stuff like that? What, what's, kind of, mm-hmm. what's kind of the approach there? Yeah, we do uh, a 10-minute addition. Um, that's 10 minutes from knockout. Sure. Um, so, yeah, we, we do reserve a little bit to try to carry some hop character over. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just a bittering addition. Yeah. Um, while minimal in the grand scheme of, of – craft beer styles um it is still noticeable when you have a little bit of that noble spiciness and kind of hop character um yeah come through so definitely uh, a key a key thing about our version um which i left out is that it's actually an ale Um, okay so yeah we are we don't have a traditional fest beer uh, or Oktoberfest because obviously those are lagers sure um so in the early days, because they were moving so fast um, and couldn't make beer fast enough, rather than lager a beer for two months and do it the traditional way, they decided to throw the ale yeast at it. Um, and you know, knowing that oh, yeah, in the future, you know, we'll we'll do the lager and and switch it over. But it was so successful, and now it's become kind of a cult thing every year that yeah. we're like, well. 
people don't want us to mess with it so we'll keep doing it as an ale sure um, and we're not trying to fool anybody it, it's called out as an ale on the can and everything right it's, sure it's kind of our american craft spin on it um but well, yeah, I mean, I, I remember early on, I was making, I, I was making a Kolsch. Uh, I, I, it was cold fermented, but I mean, I, I was throwing a, a British strain at it because that's what I had in house, and I, and I would start it at sixty. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And it's, it, it's, it's one of those things. Uh, but, but I do think it, it speaks interestingly to, you know, uh, obviously stylistically, if, if you're really going to dive in on, on, on the stylistic side you would want to throw something uh, lager yeast wise at it. But the yep. flip side is, is, you know, you can make a, a, a clean uh, from an ester standpoint, right? Obviously micro mm -hmm. too, but you know, you, you can make a, you can make a clean, you, you can make a, a, a very clean ale and, and you end up almost getting into the conversation of, you know, what percentage of people are going to know, let alone care. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think sometimes we we overemphasize that element of it. And again, if you're coming at it from a stylistic standpoint, that's great. Like there, there's no issue with that. But yeah, you can you can definitely turn you can definitely turn a, a beer like that in a clean fashion. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that I wanted to ask about um, just just briefly because we did talk about the finishing gravity and and as we know that that is in in so many ways is is built into the mash. What kind of mash? Uh, what kind of mash schedule does does a beer like that see? I, I would kind of assume it's it's a little bit on the cooler side as opposed to to the hotter side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we still do single infusion, um, just like all of our beers. Um, but yeah, it's a little it's a little cooler. It's like one forty eight mm -hmm. is what we shoot for. Or just most everything else is kind of one fifty two to one fifty four. Mm -hmm. um, but with how modified malts are these days <laughs> um the whole like you know step mashing and decoction and that whole thing really isn't as relevant as it used to be um if you're not pulling under modified malt i mean if, if, if you're not using under modified malt because i mean that i mean you we know that domestic stuff that that were that we're sourcing um first of all is made for enzyme wise, it's made for light lager, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's completely jacked up on enzyme. Probably, I mean, we, we used to joke around about it, but I mean, by, by the time you get that thing all the way in into the mash tun or you know mm -hmm. wh whatever your your dough and vessel is, you snap your fingers and 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 probably most of that stuff is converted. I mean, it, it happens pretty darn fast. You, it you know really does. I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it really does. So. It, it is one of those things, but if if you are sourcing uh, an under modified uh, mm -hmm. domestic malt or, or or European grown malt, that that stuff comes into play much more. Definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and First and time. I totally appreciate the people that take on the challenge of of doing a traditional decoction with under modified sure. malt, and you know, hitting it with the the low and slow lager, and really trying to make a, a beautiful Oktoberfest. Um, Sure. And that's, that's awesome. I think it's great when people do that and, and do it well. Sure. Um, but you can also make very, very tasty beer without that. Um, Definitely. And just brewer preference. And, you know, I think everybody, there's a place for everybody with it. Sure.
Sure. So I kind of on, on the finishing side for a beer like this, sometimes what we don't talk about when we're, when we're making these beers is some of the stuff on, on the finishing side. Um, so even just like uh, just from a, a carbonation standpoint, what, what do you like to get this thing into the can at uh, for a carb level? Uh, so we're, we're pretty standard um, at, you know, we, we carb to 265. By the time it's in the can, you're at 255 probably. Sure. Um, sure. You know, it floats a little bit, but yeah, I mean, but that's, that's kind of across the board. We don't, we don't necessarily um, carb too many things outside of that range. Um, just again, when you're at scale and running a, packaging line um having individual carb levels for each brand is is a a process nightmare um it's really hard to maintain quality when you're constantly jerking you know your set points around on your on your can line as far as undercover gassing and and head pressure and, and all that kind of stuff so um yeah we we try to streamline as much as we can with uh few things falling out outside of that um sure well i have uh, a question that came in from the chat uh jason uh spiegel uh who is excited for you to be on he's been commenting on a few things uh but he said if you have time and and, and we can just kind of take a, a little bit of a a uh, little bit of a broad overview on it potentially he said, if you have time can you talk about the recipe slash pro- uh, process for penguin uh, penguin mm. apparently is a blonde stout that you guys do. Can, can you, can you yes. give us, uh, a, a, any thoughts on that beer? Yeah, that, that was a fun, it was actually a collaboration brew we did with an LA brewery called three weavers. Okay. Um, so the, the story behind that one, um, so the guy that actually told me to reach out to Bryant about working at Rangeist, um, his name was Omar. He worked with us at Golden Road um, and then was the first sales guy for Three Weavers back in the day. He came out for the first Hopgeist, which was one of our guys' early beer fests. Mm. And he was like, oh, man, these guys are just blowing it away and they're doing crazy stuff. And he's like, man, you got to you got to reach out. You got to check them out. And so he was kind of the inspiration and the one that pushed me to to come out here. and oddly enough, he has a fear of penguins, like terrible. <laughs> he was attacked by one as a child. And Where the hell did he live? Yeah, he, it, L.A. Born and raised in L.A. I guess went to a zoo and there was a penguin encounter and came at him. And, he, and he's just been terrified of penguins ever since. And it's obviously a running joke because who's afraid of penguins? Sure. Um, so, yeah, obviously when we collabed, uh, with him we were like well we have to call this thing penguin and we got a bunch of people dressed up in penguin suits and ran around it was it was pretty pretty fun day um but anyway yeah it was a, a blonde stout um which was a style that you know uh kind of came out in yeah 2012 2013 um at least when i was in la at that time um it was making the rounds uh, there was a really good version um, that Evan Price, who now uh, owns Green Cheek, uh, which is a great brewery. If you ever had a chance to yeah. check out their stuff, fantastic beers. Um, at the time, he was at Noble Brewing in Anaheim, um, and he had this uh, beer called Naughty Sauce, which is a, a blonde stout. 
And it's essentially you're trying to recreate a stout without the color, right? You want the flavor, you want the mouthfeel without throwing a bunch of roast malt in and making it black. So it's kind of, I, I think it's the grandfather of pastry stouts really, because you mm. it was one of the first styles that really forced you to throw a bunch of other adjuncts in to, and have those really drive the flavor. Um, and, and there was, you know, people were doing it a couple of different ways. Some people, you know, were using uh, roast husk instead of roast malt um, to kind of get the flavor without as much color pickup. Um, and then a lot of people were just, let's go coffee, um, you know, and to, to add that roastiness. Um, and then obviously lactose um, to, to carry that kind of creaminess. Um, and, and, and yeah, that's just kind of how the, the style was born. So our take um, was, was, was that um, it was kind of a, a coffee and lactose blonde stout. Um, uh, it was a great, one of our first partnerships with Deeper Roots as well. Um, fantastic coffee roaster. Um, it's a, the house coffee at Rheingeist. Um, and, and yeah, so it's, it's kind of an interesting style where you're just trying to trick the brain. Um, you know, what your eye sees is not the, the flavor and the aroma. Sure. And, and I, I, I know some people have used different adjuncts in that. And I've heard people using anything of like, you know, like, like a light hand with something like anise um to, to kind of fill that back uh people trying to maybe even incorporate a little oak because sometimes you know stout definitely goes obviously into the barrel aide side as well right mm -hmm. so just some anything familiar that you can fold in that's not going to be uh that's not going to be pushing the color side of it right so you can mm -hmm. still maintain it's like that optical that 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 trick thing going on. I know sometimes people use vanilla, so yeah, that's a mm -hmm. that's a that's a fun little uh, fun little thing that uh, that some people work with. And uh, thanks, John, for the question. Um, I think right now we're, we're gonna gonna wrap, Cole. Um, just kind of uh, before we go, um, are there any things that Ryan guys has coming up on the horizon? Maybe some seasonal things. I know we've talked. Uh, we've talked Truth, we've talked Franz, we've talked uh, Cincy, Cincy Light. So maybe some of the stuff rolling on into fall, into Christmas season. And if you can tell us where we can find Rheingeist beer. Um, yeah, I mean, we mentioned crumb cake. Um, that's going to make a little uh, quick return um, post Franz. Uh, and then, of course, Dad, which is our holiday ale that is not a spiced Christmas ale. Um, it is just a hoppy, uh, kind of holiday beer, you know, uh, celebration from Sierra Nevada is kind of the inspiration for that. Um, and like bronze, that one, just every year, we don't have to mess with it. People wait for it and they crush it. Um, we've got, uh, Raven, uh, which I'm me and all the, the brew team are very excited for that is a rye export stout. Mm. Um, so kind of a, a great 6.8% ABV stout with a healthy dose of rye malt. Um, so it's got a little spice, plenty of body and heft. Um, that's going to be hitting cans, um, carry you through the, the cold winter. So really excited for that one. Um, 
And then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of get through the back half of the year, see what Cincy Light does, um, and just kind of ride that wave. Um, and then, obviously, you can find us, if you're in Ohio, pretty much anywhere. Um, yeah. Same with same with uh, Northern Kentucky and, and Indiana. Um, we're in 10 states, uh, kind of around the Great Lakes, as far south as, as Tennessee, um, and as far north as Wisconsin, um, all the way through Michigan, Pennsylvania. So beautiful. Yeah, your, your local beer beer spot. Um, and you should see us on the show. Nice. Well, hey, listen, uh, once again, I, I want to thank you for uh coming on. This was this was really a blast. I, I there's there's been some positive feedback in the chat of uh being able to look at things through through a little different lens that uh, there's not a whole ton of people uh, that can provide uh, can provide insight into. So that was really great. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much. Uh, everybody out there, uh, please check out uh, check out Ryan Geist. Uh, give their give their beers a try if you haven't already. Also, we did talk about some of the marketing branding stuff. Their, their merch is absolutely awesome. They've got get great gear as well. Uh, and then, of course, finally, uh, thank you to our wonderful sponsor, uh, Blickman Pro Brewing. And yes, I will have the September live stream. I have shift this, shifted this up. I'm going to be doing that this Monday. Um, so be checking that out and get your questions in for that. Uh, and Cole, once again, man, thanks so much for, for coming on and, and, and sharing, uh, sharing some of your story with us, brother. Absolutely. Happy to have you chat and hang out. Always a good time. Thanks, man. I'm going to uh, cut the live stream and then uh, I'll, I'll chat with you a second uh, once we're off. Uh, thanks again, brother. Cool. All right. Bye.